0: Words, they get golly hard when they jumble, jumpin' over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle, murk pool, fool, like Squirtle and Cable, cold blood is with this rhyme I'm a boss.
1: This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about progress and expansion solely for their own sake. I've been thinking about justification, rationalization, and greed. I've been thinking about profit and its unintended consequences, and I've been thinking about systems, relational effects, values, status, and beef. My guest today is Joshua Specht, and we will be talking about his new book, Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. In the author's words, this book explains the origins and ongoing resilience of a beef production system that was at once revolutionary and exploitative. Welcome, Joshua, and thank you for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me on.
1: So you teach American history at Montage University in Australia. You're, I just learned you're taking a year leaving. You'll be teaching at Notre Dame. Um, you've been dividing your time between Melbourne and, and South Bend, Indiana. Why did the history of beef grab your attention?
0: Yeah, so I got some advice when I was trying to, you know, I was, I was trying to come up with a project, as you do when you're kind of Uh, in graduate school. And someone gave me a good piece of advice, which is that anything you write a book about, you're going to be sick of by the time you uh, finish it. So choose something you're passionate about. And I had been kind of kicking around some topics that I think were interesting and important, but I didn't really feel a personal connection. And in my daily life, I I had been curious about how I connect to broader economic systems, how I connect to how we produce our food. And I had been doing some kind of general research about meat production. And I noticed there's lots of really good histories um, in the 20th century. But when I looked back at the earlier story, the period I talk about from about 1860 to 1910, there were interesting pieces of the puzzle. But I didn't think there was a book that tried to put the whole puzzle together. So I just thought, I'll I'll give it a try. And then here we are now.
1: And you talk about in the book how there are people on different ends of the spectrum and uh, approaching it historically that way, sort of critics and people that are proponents of it. And we're really just focusing in on one aspect and one type of um, perspective on that aspect. So it seems like your goal is maybe to to really bring the lens back a little bit and um, try to have a yeah. more impartial perspective on really what had happened.
0: I think so. I think you can find people who write about the cultural meanings of beef in terms of consumers, what a steak means. You can find people who really know a lot about, say, ranching, Or or slaughterhouse labor, and um, you know, in a way, I, I rely on on that really fantastic work. But my thought was, we can't understand the totality of the food system without understanding how those different pieces kind of lean on each other. You know, it wasn't just changes in cattle ranching. It wasn't just the invention of the disassembly line in slaughterhouses in Chicago. It was all these things at once. And so, I wanted to see how that kind of worked together.
1: So I think we'll start with where we are and just the basic fact that Americans of all social strata have come to expect high-quality beef as a regular part of their diets. And then maybe we'll dive into how we got there, and we can start with the beef consumption consumption trajectory. So from 1816 to 1906, what were the major changes in the way
0: that people consumed beef? Well, one thing that's interesting is that how people felt about beef – didn't really change so much. The key was that a food that they could only have on special occasions, maybe a feast day or a religious holiday, became an all-the-time food. And so the real change wasn't how they felt, it was that they got this special thing all the time, and they came to expect higher and higher quality for lower and lower prices. And the main way that happened was the centralization of cattle markets and animal slaughter in markets around the Midwest and West, particularly in Chicago. So before the American Civil War in, say, the 1850s, generally animals kind of were born, lived, died, and consumed all within a regional area. So maybe all around Boston or all around Chicago or all around New York, say, um, especially when we're talking about fresh beef. By 1900, you might have an animal that's raised in Texas, finished on a kind of early feedlot in southern Illinois, slaughtered in Chicago, and, and eaten fresh in New York or California, you know, a couple days later. And so I think that's the big change, is this kind of spatial separation between eaters and the production. And that's
1: what you identify, I think, as a cattle beef complex. And that is this yeah. whole system that developed um, with all these tentacles reaching into different areas as far as the development, the consumption, um, the government intervention, and yeah. the big four. So we'll talk about uh-huh. the big four a little bit later. Um, but you say that the, the low cost of beef production is what won out. Was that something that... Ran from the beginning of the conception of this complex to today, or was that something that developed later on, being the most
0: important aspect? Hmm. Let me think about that. I think, I think that it 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 wasn't like there was like a plot at the beginning. I think what happened is people saw an opportunity to make a lot of money uh, in ranching. Ranching takes off. These these Chicago meatpacking firms they see a way to make. Lots of money, particularly by kind of cutting prices at the same time that they're realizing these huge economies of scale. And once they start to come in for criticism from ranchers who they're kind of fleecing, from traditional butchers who they're bankrupting, they come up with a defense. And that defense is that low prices are really you know The key, that that's like the organizing principle of everything, that if they can lower prices, then what they're doing is justified. And once they start to articulate that defense, people in government buy it, consumers buy it because they want to be able to afford their meat, and that really takes off. And pri- low prices above everything else becomes the organizing principle of our food system from, say, 1900 to now even.
1: So I want people to think about a, a few terms as they're listening to the conversation, just to get those in their mind, just because the book is so comprehensive and the history is so complex. So I want people to be thinking about the development of technology, government corruption, impoverished workers, diseased meat, um, and the bankrupting of traditional butchers and sort of the the other players that were traditional early on in the system. Um, you say that the story of modern beef then is fundamentally, fundamentally political. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that? How does that play out?
0: Well, what I mean by that is there's, a, there's an appealing, the shortest version of the story, right, of how you get modern industrial food and everybody getting beef is basically you need railroads and you need refrigeration technology. The shortest answer is a technology story, right? Railroads to move meat quickly, refrigeration to keep it from spoiling. But that's, that's only a part of the story. You know, that, that determines the possibility of it. It doesn't determine who kind of dominates the system, what the specifics of the system look like. It doesn't even really talk about the fact that the land the railroads is, are going over was seized through a process of violently taking American Indian land. And so when I say that our food system is political, what I mean is that its contours, contours were shaped by human conflict people struggling to adapt to the system, people struggling to control it, whether ranchers mad about the market power of the Chicago meatpackers or slaughterhouse workers who are saying we need higher wages and forming unions. And so we can't just assume the way our food looks is inevitable and a consequence of that technology. We have to kind of trace those human conflicts and how the public and government reacted to them. You know, public turned against Organized labor in the late nineteenth century, and I think that explains a lot about the Chicago slaughterhouses, for instance.
1: And you talk about in the book how it how it was intentional to frame the industrialization of food as inevitable, and so that people yeah. sort of believed that it was.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think that's really important. You get these fascinating um, arguments, for instance. Um, so, in order to fight the power of these Chicago firms, locals, butchers, and local communities, say in Minnesota or all over the U.S., tried to pass these laws where cattle couldn't be slaughtered unless they'd been inspected locally, right? So you couldn't just ship in the Chicago beef. And what happened is the meatpackers end up challenging these in the courts. And judges essentially, first they they kind of buy the argument that you can inspect something in Chicago, and, it, and as long as the inspection's reasonable, it'll probably be okay in Minnesota. I am sympathetic to that. But the other thing they accept is that this is necessarily more efficient and inevitably, it's going to tend towards centralization in a place like Chicago, anyways. And so you see judges being, and government regulators being persuaded that centralization is going to happen, making decisions that then ensure it does happen. And so the story of inevitability kind of justifies and, and makes it happen. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but these elements
1: too of centralization and commodification were predestined and there's nothing but. And so the the courts then sort of adopt that with then figuring out, well, then how are we going to make, if these are the rules of the game, how are we going to make it fair without stepping back and saying, maybe these aren't the rules of the game. So why did the slaughterhouses want that to be the rule of the game? Because they are very intentional with every step as to like, how will this benefit us most? So why was that beneficial?
0: Well, first, I like how I like how you framed it. I think I need to I need to go back and, and listen to that and, and make that my, my party line. Um, but I think that they it serves their interest because they want as much centralization as possible. Um, and and by the way, I'm not totally skeptical of the importance of this centralization. But they want they want Chicago to be able to take over, and that's going to require decisions that allow for centralization. But I think the other thing they want to do. Is they want to? There are pieces of that story of centralization and kind of big industry that make sense and are appealing, but they want to use that logical bit to paper over all of the exploitation in the other parts of the story. So they want to say, sure, you think it's inevitable because it kind of makes sense in terms of an economy of scale. But then I also want you to accept that like slaughterhouse labor being poorly paid is also inevitable. So they kind of want to tell that piece of the story to justify the not so flattering parts of the story. That's why they embrace that.
1: Okay. So I also want to, to let anyone who's listening, who's a vegetarian know that this story is (laughs) also applicable to you. Maybe you're thinking, Oh, I don't really care about beef, beef's bad. Um, but there are a number of similarities between agriculture and com- the companies like Monsanto and Cargill uh-huh. controlling the markets, while small independent farms actually produce the product. Um, and this is a, 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 a parallel to what ha- has happened in the beef industry. How does regulation play into this result? Because you talk a lot about that, that regulation, although it it isn't the intention, and it may not have even been the initial driving force, that it may have been the small producers that were the draw. Drive- for regulation, but that regulation always or typically ends up benefiting the the bigger company.
0: Yeah, I think this is something I've kind of actually struggled with as I was thinking and working on this project, because I think you can actually find from the insights of my story, you can find you could reach all sorts of conclusions across the political spectrum about the effects of, of regulation. And I do see that kind of government intervention ends up favoring a lot of these big centralized meatpackers. If for instance, uh, federal meat inspection favors large slaughterhouses, you know, because smaller slaughterhouses can't afford the compliance. Um, similarly, even and, and and as I trace in the story, small producers were often advocating for that, and then they've kind of become victims of it. Now, the thing I want to say about uh, that I want to understand about regulation is 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 state intervention happens in particular ways, mostly around sanitation and some around con- collusion and competition. And that's because of consumer mobilization. People just aren't, haven't been interested in questions traditionally of labor exploitation or uh, environmental issues, although that might be changing. And so on the one hand, regulations have ended up favoring these big companies, but that's in part because the kinds of regulations people are pushing for are ones that do that. It's not inevitable that that has to be the case, I think.
1: Okay, so you say there are four ways to make money in regard to cattle. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's understandable why there are books just on particular aspects um, of the cattle complex. Um, yep. So we'll focus a little bit on the cattle ranchers and the, and the growth of the cattle population just itself, because they were not always mm-hmm. here. Um, and so what are the four ways to make money in regard to cattle, just so we can set the stage?
0: Well, um, you can raise them. So you can kind of – you can be a rancher. You can fatten them so you're a feedlot operator or a 19th century version of that. You can move them so you can be a cattle trailer or a railroad or you can slaughter them and process them. So you can be a meatpacker. Those are kind of the the, the key four ways I got people thinking about it. Now, of course, you can also be involved in finance and some other related things. But that's kind of the biggest picture. What I wanted to do in the book is take a step back and think very abstractly and broadly before I got into the specifics. And you have to understand how those four different actors worked. So, for instance, um, once you get this national system, there might be the Texas ranchers who kind of basically breed these animals. And they might sell in a a stockyard to either a slaughterhouse or someone who's going to fatten the animals in the Midwest. And so I tried to give a kind of kaleidoscopic view of that system and these different pieces of the puzzle.
1: And a lot was going on between 1884 and 1906. And I would guess that most people of our generation, unless you're a historian or a history Mm -hmm. buff, are not going to be aware – of the complexities of the systems that were developed and interacting um, yeah. and, and of communication as well regarding all these systems and, and people's rights and the amount of money spent. Um, the boom was over by 1890, but uh, collectively the British American operations had lost roughly $25 million um, <laughs> yeah. by the time it was over and made you know an incredible amount before then. And you think even of that number in today's day. So, you know, we're talking over 120 years ago. So the rise of corporate ranching is what mm-hmm. drove the numbers up. Um, how did that begin and, and what did that look like?
0: Yeah, so I think this is this is really important. Um, the first thing I wanted to say kind of on your first point that I think is interesting is... You know, I mean, obviously, I'm a historian. So I'm going to be pushing the, you know, think about the distant past. But in, in political debates today, you get a lot of people saying that, you know, the problems of today are very similar to the problems of the late 19th century, the time I write about. Um, because, you know, we we're having debates today about the power of Google and Facebook, say, right, the power of these big corporations, should we break them up? How do we regulate them? We're having debates about the power of agricultural producers in the place of rural communities. All those debates are are kind of, direct outgrowths of the period I'm writing about. Because in the, in the late 19th century, in the aftermath of the American Civil War, is kind of the moment in which big business came to America, and people started to wonder about the power of these big corporations. And that, paired with these kind of technological changes in terms of railroad intensification, that produces the modern food system. So so it, it kind of, I mean, it makes sense to me why that period is so important. Now, Uh, And I just got to throw
1: in there the fake news and the creating false narratives, which I think we're going to get to in the next few
0: minutes. For sure. I mean, I think this was the age of mass media. Uh, or what they called then yellow journalism, kind of nationalistic, jingoistic journalism. It also was the was the age of muckraking, investigations, right? I write about the investigations of the meatpackers up in Sinclair. Um, but but briefly, I guess I'm getting a bit off topic of the corporate ranchers. Do you want me to return to that?
1: Yeah, let's return to the cattle ranchers, and we can even maybe start, if you prefer, backed up a bit about the violent conflict over who would benefit from the burgeoning cattle industry.
0: Right. So, well, I think with, with corporate ranches um, – the, the main thing to say is, is one of the things I wanted to do was to undo a myth about how cattle ranching worked. It's the myth you might get from you know why, uh, Western films or our imagination of kind of these individual guys out there. They might be fighting with American Indians, which is a big part of my story. Um, but it's not really a business like we think about it. And when I talk about the period of corporate ranching in the 1880s, what we see is actually what jump-started kind of cattle ranching in the United States was the organization of cattle ranches as big businesses. These were huge corporations with investors in Scotland or New York that had corporate reports, that had investor prospectuses. And so I want us to get us thinking beyond those myths about cattle ranching to thinking about this as a business, a business that developed the American West, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I think an important element of that is that it is a business of people that were had the most stake in the game were nowhere near the industry they didn't really understand that yeah. they weren't participating on a daily basis Um they were removed and yet they were controlling it based on their intention of, of what they wanted to get out of it
0: yeah for sure and i i think that is um a problem and a tension throughout the story, right, is, the, is that centralization, the size of these national markets, means often the people with power and the people to shape what happens are the people most removed from the consequences. Now, I don't know how I, how I think about that in relation to politics today because I'm not, again, there are very real advantages to centralized big industrial meatpacking that I try to talk about in the book. Um, But there are also major problems. And I think a lot of the questions of environmental consequences, a lot of the harm to communities, rural communities across the United States is a product of exactly what you just said, which is the separation between places and people.
1: Well, and I think, too, as to what is your goal, right? Um, Their goal was just profit. And so right. that was the the driving concern. And so I think that's important to think about today, too. You know, why are we expanding? Why are we developing in certain areas? And is it just because we can? Or what is the desired r- result? And not to judge it, but to be aware of it. And also, I think yeah. what comes into play is what are our values and what are our rationalizations and justifications as to w- what explains what we're doing and then validates it. And I think that comes up a lot with the ranchers justifying their behavior because they believed that they were putting land to its higher, highest use. They had a particular uh. mindset. Um, and they also, all the settlers believed that they had a right to occupy the Southern Plains. They came in with that as, you know, in hindsight, you <laughs> well, that's really, we can understand why you thought that, but, you know, the large population that already existed here, it makes sense that they did not share that.
0: Yeah, I think this is really important. So yeah, let, let's back up a bit to yeah. that, which is that I think one of the things I try to do that's kind of new in my approach to writing about beef in America is that my first chapter is about American Indians and American Indian land. And I think as uh, in terms of the book as a whole, I, I've tried to make a uh, give a portrait of the place of ranching in the United States that kind of undoes some of its myths, but is also very sympathetic to the place of ranchers today in American history. Um, but this part of the story is not, is... Is troubling, And that's to look at how basically the earliest kinds of ranchers used cattle ranching as both a tool of seizing American Indian lands and also a justification for, right? So they said, like you were just saying, they had this idea that ranching was actually putting land to a, a good use. You had government officials writing things like talking about the plains before cattle ranching as a barren waste and then talking about as a scene of enterprise and thrift. So this gave an ostensible use for Western land until you had expanded settlement. And so ranching was actually part of that process of the territorial expansion of the US.
1: And I just want to throw out a fun fact that the Dawes Act led to a decline in Indian-controlled land of almost 75%, and that Oklahoma had been set aside previously as Indian territory. And then when the there was a shift in how the cattle were being grazed um, and and a shift in what was going to really, they thought, produce you know more control over the system, took that territory away.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really, I mean, one of the major sources of revenue for the ranching industry in, say, the 1880s and even in the 1870s is basically, you know, during the period of the bison um, and before mass ranching, American Indians basically lived off the hunt of the bison. People like the Kiowa, the Cheyenne, they made they they kind of made their livelihood and after their land is taken and they're they're forced onto government reservations they have no way to support themselves and they become very poor and the way to keep them fed are handouts of beef from the government that is bought from local ranchers and so they all of a sudden people are supporting themselves become important customers for ranchers and then ranchers and people in, in government look at these uh, look at american indians and say see how poor they are we were justified the whole time And so, and how incompetent, right?
1: You talk Mm -hmm. about, and how incompetent. You talk about the making a spectacle out of the ration distribution to validate the idea that these people are savages and they're so incompetent they can't even feed themselves. It just makes, I had to put the book down many times during that chapter, (laughs) take some deep breaths. Um,
0: Yeah, I think that part's pretty troubling. And I think mm -hmm. you're exactly right.
1: Okay. So we steal the land. Um, I do want to point out there was a very recent Supreme Court case uh, that um, I don't know if you heard about it, where the Supreme Uh, Court actually, they were deciding about one of the treaty rights that was given to the I think it was the Crow Indians in Wyoming to be able to hunt in land that was off the reservation. And ah, they just decided in favor of the Native Americans that yes, this treaty was still intact this many years later, and they did have the right to hunt.
0: On, yeah, on I land. mean, that's so fascinating. That this is awesome. a these treaties are a big deal on this on this count. And I think a lot of people think, oh, well, this does this doesn't really count, or this wasn't thought about. But everyone involved thought very carefully about these treaties, and they really are important to America today, even.
1: Okay. So the cattle ranchers. Um, One other big change historically that made a big difference in the development of of the cattle complex was horses coming into Mm -hmm. the nation in fighting these battles, and be able to then drive the cattle.
0: Yeah. I mean, horses, if you think about, even actually, horses remade North America in general. So, you didn't get – so there is, some, there is some evidence that there were horses long ago, but in, in, in the Americas, they were largely hunted to extinction. Europeans brought horses, um, and American Indians didn't, didn't have horses before about 1680. And that made it really hard to live on the plains, and it made it hard to hunt the bison. But once they had horses, starting in about 1680, entire societies became organized around hunting bison on the plains and this kind of semi-nomadic lifestyle. And so even before cattle ranching, horses remake what the kind of political and environmental world of what becomes the United States is as people begin to hunt the bison full time. Then horses become important, obviously, to the spread of ranching because you can't manage large quantities of cattle unless you're on horseback. Yeah, because they're
1: ornery critters. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing, people might think they're like these docile animals, but um, they've got huge personalities and uh, strong intentions as to to what they want to do and don't want to do.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: And so horses change the landscape a great deal, um, as far as moving the Native Americans out of the way, and then being able to move the cattle. And the cattle were being moved a lot in this time. Um, They were being moved a lot uh, to being fed, so then made them dependent on the weather. Uh, In two areas, I think it's also important to think about in today's life and the decisions we make. One, the way, what a short time once the horses arrived that we devastated the herds of the plains Mm -hmm. um, and didn't think of maybe the consequences of that. And then also didn't think about the consequences of weather and it being something we couldn't control.
0: Yeah. um, I think that in the kind of In ecological or environmental consequences of this story are big, and they're evident throughout. I think that, and I'll I'll get to weather in a second, but I think you're, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's actually astounding how quickly after the start of the commercial bison hunt that they're driven nearly to extinction. Right. So if you think about, there might, there might be thirty million. It's like a reasonable estimate for bison um, before, say, you know, Columbus. So a long time ago, they might be somewhat in decline in North America kind of in the early 19th century before the Civil War. But they really collapse once there's a commercial hunt uh, driven by American hunters. And they go down to ne- only a few hundred animals. So they, they really are brought to the brink of extinction within just a few decades, all because people want le- bison leather for industrial uses and they want bison hides for kind of warm coats.
1: And action of the propaganda complex too, right? That these the, the way that the bison were framed as being sort of these ugly beasts... So, so yeah, again justify I mean, justification in killing them,
0: yeah, I mean, I think that they're not they're not thought of as something to be protected and i I talk a bit in the book about early kind of uh settlers who who are kind of disgusted by bison, unlike the cattle, which they they celebrate um I think that but I think one of the things that's important, and this is on the weather point is. People in the 19th century didn't have quite as dynamic an understanding of of weather and kind of environmental consequences as we do now, and so a few times it was it was a total disaster. I mean, I, I write a bit about in the book about these winters in the late 1880s that really kind of devastate the cattle ranching industry. Now, I kind of complicate the view that it's purely the winter, um, but I think one thing about the story is that yeah, they don't realize that the plains have massive fluctuations in terms of their weather. And that shapes the kind of society you you can have on them. And for instance, there's a lot of evidence that in the mid-19th century, the, the Great Plains in general were much wetter than typical. And so all of our kind of baselines about the environment there is based on kind of not representative understandings of the weather there.
1: And different parts of the Plains were very different, right? Like oh, there were some sure. areas where they were protected and so they could be there, but people extrapolated in misconceptions about survival there. So let's focus in a little bit on the transport of cattle because yep. um, we're driving the cattle all kinds of places for all kinds of reasons. Um, and at the same time, the railroads are expanding. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what
0: did that look like? Yeah, so, so the key to this, as, I, as I've implied a few times, is railroads are important but railroads really start to take shape along an east-west kind of orientation from Chicago eastward and that's in part because those are kind of the most populous regions of the US in the 19th century early 19th century and also the American Civil War kind of takes the south rail network a bit out of commission for a while and so you get this east-west orientation of the American economy And yet, if you think about how we think about, say, ranching in general, western ranching, it's all along a kind of north-south expanse of the country. And so how do you connect this ranching that might be happening in southern areas like Texas with an east-west rail network that's up in Chicago or, or maybe starting to just stretch down to places like Kansas? Well, you have to do the cattle drive. And so they figure out ways to basically convince these animals to walk themselves a thousand miles or so. And this is where you get the kind of most romantic and iconic images of, of the world of the cowboy, right? Taking, walking these animals, you know, vast expanses, big sky, you have in, in actuality, you know, you would have people, 10, 10 people walking 3000 animals, 1000 miles, it's a pretty, it's a pretty amazing feat. And so one thing I do in the book is try to understand, well, how do you actually do that on the ground? You know, it's easy for me to say this happened, but how does this actually happen on the ground?
1: Yeah, what does this look like? And you talk about the just the the challenge of finding water and yeah. how thirsty these animals get.
0: I mean, a herd, a large herd of cattle could drink, uh, you know, something like thirty thousand gallons of water a day. If yeah, it's so hot.
1: that that part alone was just incredible because that is not in yeah. the cowboy lore. <laughs> and these animals are, you know, falling down dead because they're so thirsty and they're having to kill the baby um, calves because they won't survive that track.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I actually thought the the amount a herd could drink is astounding when you think, I mean, I had, to, I had to look it up a few times just to be absolutely sure and try to do some math there. Yeah, I mean, it, it does, in one sense, it makes sense, right? Uh, the areas of the great cattle drive are very dry, And so water shapes everything. So I like to think of it kind of, you get the cattle moving, you need a horse. So it's a configuration of horses and extremely skilled riders who kind of get the herd moving. And then water kind of dictates everything about your route. You know, how you go depends on your access to water. Um, but, But generally, you're roughly headed, particularly by the very early 1870s, you're headed to cattle towns in Kansas. And these are kind of where the American West meets the American Rail Network in places like Abilene, Kansas. These tiny towns that, you know, in some years of the early 1870s could have 100,000 cattle just showing up around the town. And so it's it's a, it's a pretty wild story. That's one of my favorite parts to had been to research It
1: is that. a wild story. And, and the people that we think are the heroes maybe aren't at times. And then also the people that we think have the power, like the railroads, for instance, um, or the ranchers m- m- is also at times very inaccurate as to who's really uh, making the rules of the game.
0: Um, Go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying this was something that I I puzzled through throughout the book. You know, it's almost like every character is every set of people even in, in one section I think of kind of I'm cheering for them and in another section I'm booing them so it is it is kind of a funny story and it is really a lot about how people in some contexts have power but then also become victims of circumstance or sometimes their own success I tried to
1: find a protagonist and I, I could say well eke out maybe the courts like at least the courts throughout were trying to do the right thing even though they <laughs> didn't at every turn felt like they had the most consistent integrity um, yeah. but something else that's so interesting about the transport of the cat that I thought is also relevant today is all the businesses and middlemen that pop up um, within this industry to guide it. And you think about yeah. that with technology today or even with podcasts, all the people that, that stand up and say, oh, well, I can make this easier. I can support you with what you're doing. And so there were promoters and there were, I think you call them boosters. boosters um, yeah. and, and managers at all, um, all parts of the, the cattle drive. Um, why was it that buyers always had the upper hand? Because this is something that you might not think mm. would be so consistent as it
0: was. Yeah, I think this is this is a really important dynamic because um, this explains why the meat packers are so successful. So, you know, one of the things when I was, I have these long descriptions of the cattle drive is I, I want to stress the physicality of this, right? These are These are animals. They're big animals. As you said, they're ornery. There's a lot of them. They're hard to move. And it's important to appreciate that because what you see from the perspective of the buyers, people like the big meat packers, but to some extent also these kind of Midwestern feedlot operators, is they have the power of choice. They don't have to deal with the physical animals until the moment they buy it. So they can kind of hold off, and a meat packer might be able to look at prices for cattle in the Union Stockyards in Chicago. They might be able to look at prices in Omaha and they can decide where to buy. They can operate in in different markets at once. So they have a huge choice. But if you're a rancher, no matter how powerful you are in terms of your back on your ranch, you have these animals in Chicago and it's expensive to move them. And so because you're the one kind of currently holding the bag, you're stuck. And so it becomes whoever can best kind of treat cattle as an abstraction for as long as possible ends up benefiting the most. And this is how buyers have an advantage. So hopefully that clarifies a bit. It's a little bit strange.
1: Well, and two, who controls the information, right? Because yeah, information. The, the, because the slaughterhouses are communicating um, yeah. from one city to the next, and so much price fixing <laughs> that was the other thing. I'm like, where's the Sherman Act yeah. when we need it? Like, you know, they were sort of noticing that all this price fixing and collusion was going on, um, but it didn't seem to to tamp it down at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's this is this this bit is just crazy. I mean, they're basically from. The meat packers are basically getting together, as, as many businesses are doing in this period, and they're saying, "Well, if we compete against each other, we're just going to drive each other out of business. So it's better to kind of fleece the people who are our suppliers. So let's not bid against each other and kind of trap people." And 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 ranchers know this is happening because they're living it. And government investigators are trying to prove this is happening for decades, from 1880s to the early 1900s. And you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty conclusive. There's a funny moment where the head of Armour Company, this guy named Philip Danforth Armour, kind of the most charismatic of the big meatpackers, he tries to claim that in the union stockyards, they're like flints rubbing together. That's the competition with the meatpackers, just making all these sparks with their conflict. Uh, and I like to imagine when he said that, you know, I just have the, the transcript of this this Senate investigation. I just kind of like to imagine everyone kind of raising an eyebrow. But but Armour really just sticks with that line. Um, and eventually, there are some court rulings in the early 20th century that proved definitively there was collusion. But this really was at the core of their business model.
1: Again, which parallels so much today and the success in just taking a line, sticking with it, and yeah. you know, no, repeating no, exactly. it over and over and over and over. Um, yes. and, and there's some power in that. So let's talk a little bit about the government regulation, because you say they were trying to... Um, unearth the price fixing and the collusion and and the disparities in power in the system. Um, Why is it important to understand that the regulations were primarily around food safety versus labor or another aspect of the industry?
0: Um, I think, yeah, so one of the things I stress is the most successful set of regulations, as you've said, were around food safety. And I think this is important because I wanted to understand two things. I wanted to understand how regulation happened in in the meatpack industry, but also why. And what I realized is that the kinds of measures that are successful usually surround things that A, consumers can get really worked up about, and B, that industry can find a reason to be friendly towards. So sanitation, the meatpackers are really worried people are going to be disgusted by what they're eating, so they're going to embrace sanitation because it's kind of win-win. Like if they can solve that problem, people are happy. Labor though, environmental exploitation, even um, price fixing against ranchers, what int- who? What big group does that really help? Well, it could help laborers, it could help ranchers, but there's no one really else on their side. They're just one, one group of people. And so they don't really have the kind of clout to secure some of these regulations. And meat packers very cleverly Side Claim they're on the side of consumers. They don't use the word consumers, but they say basically we're lowering prices for the common laborer. And if you do what the ranchers want, us, want to do and have us more tightly regulated, well, you're going to increase consumer costs. And government ultimately buys that. And so I think an understanding of like prices being low is, is what kind of justifies all of the system's inequities.
1: And I think this is a really aspect for people to think about, because you talk about when consumers drive regulation, and here in the case, their focus was purity and low prices, and they were the most influential in, in um, promoting regulation, that the system
0: that produces the food becomes invisible. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's really the key. And, and that is what kind of troubles me about the story today. I mean, it made me kind of skeptical of the power of consumers because basically what I found is that once consumers kind of trusted that their food wasn't going to poison them and they knew the price was low, everything else could just be happening behind the scenes. They don't want to think about it. They don't seem to care. Um, And so what it means is that they were successful in those things, but that actually makes any other kind of reform almost impossible, right? Because if you're trying to change anything else behind those scenes, what the meatpacking firms do is they say, well, that's going to make consumers unhappy because it'll hurt prices. And so that, it made me very kind of impressed in some ways with the power of consumers, but also very skeptical about their ability to change much.
1: Well then, and and also those then aspects can be taken advantage of those who control the yeah. system. You talk about in 1902, there was a kosher meat riot. Women were smashing windows and pouring kerosene oil <laughs> on the meat and grabbing meat out of other customers' hands and stomping on it. <laughs> yeah. um, because prices went up, and there's rumor that maybe they were intentionally driven up, um,
0: yeah, to, to and create I,
1: this frenzy.
0: And I think one one kind of funny bit about that story too is, you know, they're rioting because they want beef, because beef, and one of the ways you can tell how important it is to them is the kind of fishmongers of the city say. Why don't you? Why don't you have some fish instead? Or, or uh, vegetable sellers say, "Oh, well, we, you know, we can teach you how to prepare these things that are delicious." And what you see from the consumers is, no, they don't want anything else; they want the beef. And so it makes for a really amusing kind of story that reveals the power of, of beef to people.
1: It doesn't. Also, the aspect of what is, um, what is, where is status in the period, uh, and who's responsible for what, and There's a a lot of um, reference in the book as to the development of the place of beef, not just as a food item, but as a status symbol and new ways to prepare the beef so that it really suited the growth of stature at every level as far as, well, I can have a porterhouse, maybe for the poorest that that we're not Mm -hmm. typically eating meat. And then as it went up the ladder, well, you know, I can prepare this at home in this beautiful way. And then I can have this fancy dinner party, or I can go to these incredible restaurants or have beef that's shipped from from France and prepared, you know, in a a specific way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I found that a really important part of the story, you know, beef, how you eat beef, what you eat, that you know, as there's kind of a truism that it shows who you are. And I think for so many people, beef became a way to distinguish themselves as elites, to show that as immigrants, they'd made progress in America, to say the, to, to, to trace their success as workers. And so when everybody wants beef for all these different reasons, well, the system that's giving them the food, this kind of Chicago dominated meatpacking model, that's winning out, right? That one of the reasons they're so successful is, everybody sees beef as central to who they are. So if you can be providing that beef, you know, you're never going to struggle.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about something you mentioned in the beginning, which was the disassembly line. Um, mm. And and why was de-skilling the laborers so effective at that period of time for the slaughterhouses and the growth of, of industrialization?
0: Well, so, you know, the the, the operation of the slaughterhouses – is fascinating to read about. Um, it, it's incredibly important to our world today. Henry Ford in his memoirs talks about watching a side of beef in Chicago being his model kind of for developing his assembly lines for cars. Um, but the disassembly line was the process by which you turn, you know, one animal carcass into many different commodities. And what de-skilling did is if you broke that into different tasks. So so division of labor was the key to this. If you broke it into small enough tasks, A, you could force everyone to work at the same speed, so everyone had to work as fast as the fastest person, but you could also train new people very easily. And if you could train new people easily, you could always find competition and wages, so you could cut wages, and you could work people at risk of life and limb because if the person was maimed, as, as I talk about the story of, of one boy who's injured – Uh, for life, you can replace them easily. And so part of their profit comes from this kind of de-skilling that makes the assembly line or disassembly line more efficient. Now the interesting thing about that is you can kind of de-skill a whole bunch of different tasks. But actually, it requires some tasks become much more skilled. And so you pay a few people on your disassembly line way more money. They become known as the butcher aristocracy. And then you can pay everybody else much less, and the average wages go way down.
1: And two, then, even the sort of... Um, cynical approach that's embedded in that as far as then those people who are earning a little more as a specialist are motivated to keep the unskilled wage earners, lower wage earners, uh, doing their part, You know, even if they are literally being worked to death. And also the the court's approach to his claim I thought was so interesting as to what was the mindset at the time of individual responsibility versus corporate responsibility Mm -hmm. and the idea that because he knew the risks at work and continued to go to work, then it was his own fault, and the corporation wasn't wasn't uh, responsible for his injury. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, if we think about that story, so to, to just summarize it for everyone, like I tell the story of, of a young boy who gets a job, well, a young man, he's about 13 or 14, he gets a job in a slaughterhouse cutting sides of meat. Um, he has some help at first, but they slowly fire his help um, and just put more and more work on him. He is hit by a carcass of meat and is basically maimed. And he, like as you said, he sues, and basically the courts say, "Well, you knew it was dangerous, and yet you kept working. So, like your your employer bears no responsibility." Uh, but you know, of course, imagine that we were that boy, right? Imagine we're 14, we're recent immigrants to the United States. He's I don't I couldn't find that much about him, but he might be supporting members of his family. Is he really choosing to continue working there? You know, is is he choosing to continue working there in the same way I might choose to to do something? I don't think so, and so I found that yeah, really troubling part of the story. Yeah,
1: and so relevant today, you know, looking at the immigration crisis and yeah, um, you know, what what are how do we define choice, you know, where yeah. where does the free will lie and where does the responsibility um, of the government and then of the the nation lie? And and another element that I think is dr- drives through the book and is relevant today is reforming food production. And you talk about what the relationship is between political economy and consumer choice. So maybe we yep. can just finish with what that looked like then and how that's relevant today.
0: Yeah. So, well, I think, I think there's a few, few insights. So first of all, from then, I think the key parts of the story I saw is that consumers could be very powerful, but only in particular ways as I've said, around sanitation. The other thing I've tried to say from the book at the time that we see is as, as we got into, there's people running around saying this is inevitable, that this is the way it has to be. And what the book actually shows is it was not inevitable. There were hundreds, thousands of fights all across the United States that helped determine the final shape of this system. And so when we look at it today, I think the insights from that, one, are that we should kind of think about consumer politics with our, you know, fully informed about its strengths and its weaknesses and we should also not take for granted that the food system we have now is the way it has to be or the one that makes the most sense given the world we live in you know given the technology we have and when we make those conclusions i think we see the ability to change that our food system, but we realize it's going to be—it's a really big project. It it requires a holistic view about American inequality. It requires thinking about environments. It requires thinking about people, and so it's it's challenging, but you know it's potentially revolutionary.
1: And I think you said that's where the solution lies, right? In critics building political coalitions that allow the conversations about the industry as a whole, yeah. rather than just the segmented aspects.
0: Yeah, I think that you know there if we're all if people are all engaged with individual pieces of this puzzle it becomes really hard to actually change anything because it's so big so you think about ranchers who are getting squeezed right if they're just focusing on their problems they're just one tiny piece and again the big agricultural companies can say, well, we're helping the consumers. But if the ranchers think about talking to some extent with people concerned about labor issues in slaughterhouses, or people who are concerned about animal welfare, or climate change people, if those people all can figure out a way to make a collective case, then I think we can try to disarm this this argument about, you know, that justify everything in terms of benefit just to consumers.
1: And maybe it begins with establishing collective values, you know, what what short term and long
0: term. Yeah, and I think it requires an under it requires a a collective values that are both, you know, friendly to the the power of the food system we have but also kind of skeptical about its success.
1: And it requires an understanding of history, people. (laughs) And (laughs) get some history books and begin with this, the Red Meat Republic. Um, So I'm going to throw out two more fun facts before we finish. Um, One is, in 1901, more than 300 million pounds of dressed beef crossed the Atlantic, That was, I had to think about that for a while. That's insanity. Um, And that uh, barbed wire fence went from 10,000 pounds of fencing in 1874 to 80 million pounds in 1880.
0: That's pretty wild, yeah, Yeah. when you put it like that.
1: (laughs) So so was there anything that for you, while you were doing this research, you did an incredible amount of research, um, that... Blew your mind, where you're like, "This is just, you know, so surprising," and and I have to sit back
0: and think about this. Hmm. Well, there were things. Okay, here's 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 just a small one. Um. So I I talked about earlier how they would ranchers often had these contracts to supply beef to American Indian reservations, and I had kind of thought for months, I thought, okay, I know this. This is like an important. Source of business for them, but I also bet you that the beef they're giving them is low quality and maybe it's meat they can't sell anywhere else. And I just had this suspicion for months. And I'm just every day, you know, eight hours, I'm reading these ranching records. And I thought, well, they're never going to say that, right? Because that's pretty shady. And then I eventually found a letter where guys were talking about having sick cattle that they couldn't sell in Chicago. And their agent said, oh, you should just do what other people do. Just ship it home, and then you can distribute it to a reservation. And I thought, I knew it. I finally have the smoking gun. And I think that it didn't quite blow my mind, but that was kind of a Eureka moment that really became important to telling the story. And so there were a few others like that, I think.
1: Yeah, I think they're all around that sort of the canned beef and the, that the people oh, in the yeah. military, <laughs> you know, didn't want to eat it and were suspect and that it maybe killed thousands of men. We only had 500 deaths in the Mexican, was it the Mexican-American War? One of the wars. Yeah, and, yeah. and yet thousands because of a Spanish-American the American Spanish-American Spanish-American. Yeah. yeah, there some war in the yeah. Mexican-American, but due to the beef. Um, yeah. And then I just thought about my growing up. And when we were sick, you know, we'd get bovril, my mom was British, so we'd get bovril oh. on toast. And there was something in the book about that, that wait a minute, how could both the beef be really nutritious and the the um, liquid that's, you know, squeezed out of it that then becomes the marmite and, and bovril, except maybe marmites made from something else, but bovril at least.
0: Yeah, that blew my. That yeah. actually blew my mind. That's one of my favorite bits too, is they talk about making this weird stuff they then called beef extract. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, yeah, I they're ate being interviewed it. and they're saying, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, "Well, they all right." So yeah, that that reading some of the mental gymnastics required to justify that really yeah, was blowing yeah, my mind. Yeah, yeah. Was- and
1: similar ones used to justify giving the the Native Americans the diseased beef. Yeah. So we, we do a lot of justifying. So one thing that is justified is uh, your book. It was really fantastic. Oh, thank um, you, Joshua. Respect Red Meat Republic: A Hoof to Table History of How Beef Changed the World. And I'm just going to read the beginning of the cover: How Beef Conquered America and Gave Rise to the Modern Industrial Food Complex.
0: Oh, uh, thanks so much for having me yeah. on. It was so, really great. so,
1: thank you so much for the book, and, and thanks for joining us today, Joshua. Thanks. Okay, great. Bye.
0: Bye.